Well, here we are, week after Easter Sunday, right? Last week, we were filled to capacity. Why, I could reach out and touch the people that were sitting right there. Now, we can have a couple of responses to that. We can whine. We can be a little judgmental. We can even be a little disgusted. Where are all those people today? Why did they bother coming at all last week? Or we can rejoice and we can say, thank you, Lord, for the reminder that last Sunday was that our culture is not yet completely post-Christian. Thank you that in spite of all that's said about our culture, in spite of all that's written about our culture and the, the spiritual decline that celebrating Jesus and his resurrection can still draw a crowd. Thank you, Lord, that there's still spiritual interest in this country and around the world. I don't know about you, but I'm opting for response number two. Thankfulness. Thankfulness that churches were filled last week. It gives me hope. And it throws down a a challenge before us, you and me. You and I have to do this. We have to demonstrate that the resurrection is a present, ongoing reality that's not limited to just one day. We need to show that resurrection reality in our own lives to demonstrate that the resurrection is more than a past event or a future hope. The resurrection of Christ has present power and value in our lives. I hope that we'll be convinced of that this morning so that Easter Sunday will not be the only day that churches are filled. If you have your Bibles open, we're going to be looking at John chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there in the pew in front of you. If you'll take it, turn in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Find chapter 21, and when you found it, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. John chapter 21, verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Afterward, this is after his resurrection, afterward Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Every word of it important, every sentence written. To reflect your glory and to guide and direct and inform our lives. Joined with the Spirit, Lord, your word is what brings transformation and changes us. And so, Lord, in these brief verses this morning, we pray that you would use your truth to change us, transform us into people that you desire us to be, people who are at work giving our lives to transform our culture through sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If 
you look again at verse 2, one of only two read this morning, it says, Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Now that doesn't look to us to be much more than just a list of names. But let me tell you, it's much more than just a list of names. Because in reality, this one verse records a tremendous change that has taken place because of the week that changed the world. The men listed in this verse are together. They are together. Now, in our English translations, the words were together appear at the very end of the sentence. Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, John were together. But in the Greek, these two words are the first words in the sentence. Together were Peter, Thomas, and the rest. In the Greek language, that which stands at the beginning of the verse is the most important. So while our English translations emphasize who they were by putting their names first, the Greek version emphasizes what they were. They were together. And that's what's important. These men were together in Galilee, an intact group. Their togetherness is exactly the opposite of what everyone expected. Their togetherness defied the logic of the day. I'll give you an example. Gamaliel, he was a teacher of the law. He was honored by all the people. On one occasion, he addresses the entire Sanhedrin, the religious body, and he gives them a history lesson. Gamaliel reminded them of a man named Thutis. He appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He, too, was killed, and all his followers were scattered. These groups were scattered, according to the wise man Gamaliel, because they did not have the power of God behind them to keep them together. That's what happens. You strike the leader and the followers will scatter. Jesus said something very similar to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before they came to arrest him. Jesus quoted from the prophet Zechariah. He said, You will fall away from me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And that's exactly what happened. When Jesus was stricken, arrested, tried, beaten, mocked, crowned with thorns, nailed to a cross, when he appeared to be stricken of God and afflicted, when it appeared that the power of God was not behind him at all, when it appeared that God instead had forsaken Jesus, his son, his followers scattered. But Jesus added his own prophecy to the prophecy of Zechariah. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But, Jesus says, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. After the resurrection, when it's proven 
that the power of God is with and behind Jesus. In that moment, the gospel becomes an unchangeable, undeniable reality of human history, along with all the power that accompanies the gospel to bring change and transformation. That power is demonstrated in this verse. These men are together in Galilee. The question then becomes, how did that power work? How did these men stay together? How can these men face one another knowing what they all did? It seems to me that guilt and shame would have kept them isolated, would have kept them separated from one another. All of us in this room, I feel quite certain, know how powerful shame is. We have felt the burn, the the little burn on our faces when shameful words that we have said are heard or shameful acts that we have done are exposed. Kathy and I and our first two children, Kate and Brooke, we lived for a few months with my grandmother while we were packing up and preparing to go to seminary. Now, my grandmother, being a tough, frugal, no-nonsense mountain woman who raised all five of her children during the Depression, was not always the easiest woman to live with. There always seemed to be judgment toward you if you weren't tough enough or frugal enough or no-nonsense enough. For instance, one day I was going to throw away a jar of apple juice that we had left in her refrigerator months before. The apple juice had grown mold on the top of it. My grandmother said, there's nothing wrong with that apple juice. You take you a piece of cheesecloth and pour it through, that pour that juice through it, and it'll strain off all that mold. I said, Granny, I would rather go to the store and buy fresh apple juice for my children. She responded, hmm, I guess somebody's got more money than I've got. <laughs> anyway, that's Granny. One afternoon, Kathy and I were, I love air quotes, discussing some of the difficulties of living with Granny in the upstairs bedroom. We were so intent on our discussion that we didn't really notice that the baby monitor was in that room. (laughs) Neither did we notice that it was turned on, nor did we know that the other monitor was in the kitchen. Now, if I made you guess, where do you think my grandmother was in that moment? (laughs) Oh, that's right, in the kitchen with the baby monitor. Now, imagine my horror when I come downstairs, go to the kitchen, and there's my grandmother, and there's the baby monitor. Yeah, it was one of those moments. And I asked the Lord, what are the chances that you allowed her hearing aid batteries to go out in this (laughs) moment? I couldn't look at my grandmother because I didn't know whether she heard or did not hear. And so I made a quick exit from the kitchen and from her presence. It was really a shameful moment, honestly, to talk about my grandmother who had so graciously and gladly opened her home before us. For us, thankfully, that's before I went to seminary and got a master's in divinity. (laughs) 
we were embarrassed, really, and, and disgusted by our behavior. And when we are, we don't want to face anyone. So what did the disciples have to do? How did they navigate these shameful feelings that they most certainly felt? How were they able to face one another knowing what they had done? Jesus wasn't flawed. He wasn't difficult like my grandmother was. At the end of the day, I might have been able to justify that discussion about my grandmother because of her words and her actions, but, but not with Jesus. He's perfect. He had graciously called these men to follow him, to, to get to be with him. From Jesus, they had known only grace and compassion and mercy, a tremendous amount of patience because these guys never seemed to get it. He was a perfect friend in every way. That's all they knew Jesus to be. And that's why they loved him so deeply. And that's why when Jesus said in the upper room at the Last Supper that one of you will betray me, Scripture says the disciples were deeply grieved and they went around the table one by one and said, Lord, surely not I. It was unimaginable to them that they would ever deny or abandon one like Jesus. It was never going to happen. Except, of course, for Jesus, Judas, who had already done the deed. That's the night that Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. But, of course, we know what happens, don't we? We know the rest of the story. Hours later, they all desert Jesus and leave him to his fate. So how do you face one another after that? How do you stay together? It doesn't matter that everyone else did what you did. You did it too. And you know what is true about most of us? We delude ourselves, don't we? into thinking we're a little bit better than other people, or at least a little bit different. We would never do that. And yet each of the disciples did. And so it seems remarkable to me that here they are together. We don't know what their conversations were when they saw each other for the first time. Scripture doesn't tell us that. But we know the power that brought them together. It was the word of Jesus. It was his call on their lives. You know the story, the newly resurrected Jesus said to Mary Magdalene and the other women on that first Easter morning, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers. Can you imagine calling them that? Go, tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Jesus is alive and he wants to see them, the deniers and the abandoners. And so here they are. Because of the word of the Lord, because of the will of the Lord, because of the very real resurrection power of the Lord. Jesus is the one who makes their togetherness possible. And that's what I wish everyone knew who only come to church on Easter Sunday, but who go it alone the rest of the year. People who struggle and suffer alone through guilt and shame, and all the havoc that these twins wreak in our lives and relationships. There is present freedom from guilt and shame. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, there's the resurrection, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. No shame with Jesus. 
Colossians chapter 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your heart, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus takes away our guilt and our shame. And I don't know about you, but I need to hear that more than one time a year. Don't you? That Jesus takes away our guilt and our shame. I know that in that moment, when God justifies us, We repent of our sins, we turn in faith to Christ, and the the gavel in God's courtroom falls and declares, you are not guilty. I know in that moment that my sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. I know that Jesus takes them off of me. He takes the sin off of me, and he takes it on to himself. And he takes his perfect righteousness, and he puts that on me instead. I know that theological truth. I'm talking about experiential truth. That every day... We need to feel that because a resurrection is real and true, it has present value in our lives. Our shame is taken away every day. We can face God. We can stand in His presence. We don't have to run and hide because of Jesus. What a blessing. When we carry shame, and you know this is true, When you carry shame, you run away from the presence of God. And when you run away from the presence of God, you are running further and further away from light. And the further you get away from light, where do you end up? Darkness. Our shame, if we don't experience the forgiveness of it, will lead us to darkness. If we flee from the presence of God, if we run away from His presence, we get further and further away from His life. And where do we end up? Where do we end up? You get closer and closer to a lifeless living. Jesus took the shame of the disciples. He can take away yours and mine as well. And that's what we need to let the Easter people know. That's what we need to let Easter-only people know and see in our lives. What the, the presence of an ongoing, resurrected Jesus can do in our lives, the freedom from guilt and shame, the burden that's lifted from us. They need to see that. They also need to see that the the resurrection power of Jesus preserves. Jesus is the one who held this group of men together. People who struggle alone through the brokenness of relationships, and the chaos of lives that at times seems like they are falling apart. They need to know the power of the resurrected Jesus to preserve and to hold together. With the present reality of Jesus' resurrection and the power that it gives, community is preserved, relationships are restored, and Humpty Dumpty lives are put back together again. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, That Jesus is the image of the invisible God. By him all things were created. 
All things were created through him and for him, that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Jesus Christ, all things hold together. Now that's one of those statements that needs to be said aloud so that everyone can hear it, right? So you're going to say it with me. We're going to say together that Jesus holds all things together. You ready? Jesus holds all things together. Your neighbor needs to know that because the neighbor sitting beside you on the pew may not know that. So would you turn to your neighbor? Turn to your neighbor. Come on. And say, Jesus holds all things together. Amen. Now that's what we've got to remember. Jesus holds it together, keeps it from falling apart. After all these years, I have finally found a spiritual reason for the Easter egg that makes sense to me. It's Jesus. I'm not kidding. Because without the egg and the batter, the cookies fall apart. The cake falls apart. The meatloaf falls apart. The potato cakes fall apart, right? The egg holds it together. The egg holds it together. This is possibly the worst illustration you ever heard in your life. But it works for me. I've been thinking about it all week. Jesus is the Easter egg. He holds all things together. So now I celebrate the Easter egg. But Jesus preserves for a purpose. He preserves for a purpose. He has a reason for calling these men together, for keeping these men together. Through this small group of men, Jesus is literally going to change the world. They're preserved for a purpose, and so are we. You and I here, held together by the resurrection power of Jesus for a purpose. The church, the church, which is what we are. We are God's instrument on earth to bring change to the power of the gospel. We, together, as a church, are called to work together to make this world that we inhabit, to make this city we inhabit look more and more like what God intends it to be. A place of righteousness where people do what's right. A place of justice and mercy and love and compassion. A place where the glory of the Lord through the gospel of Jesus Christ covers the earth as waters cover the sea. To be that kind of church, you and I, together, we have to first be together. We have to look at one another as co-laborers co-labors in this divine mission. Look at your neighbor. Look at your neighbor. See them that way. Co-labors in this divine mission. Now stop looking at your neighbor. Because when you look around at the people you have to work with, I mean, excuse me, that you get to work with, we're tempted to ask that famous question. Is my sin as obvious to you as your sin is obvious to me. When we look around at each other, what do we see? Flaws and shortcomings. I'm telling you, I'm always amazed at what the Spirit of God does, you know, in sermon preparation, things like that. You know, Kathy and I read Oswald Chambers on our front porch in our rocking chairs drinking coffee. But it's been a while since we've done that kind of gotten away from Oswald Chambers. But here I am working on this sermon. And Kathy says to me Friday morning, oh, you've got to hear what Oswald Chambers has to say this morning. 
So, I'm going to tell you what Oswald Chambers had to say the last three days of last week in his devotional, My Upmost for His Highest. He's talking about our need to pray for other people. He says when, uh, that, that we see where other folks are failing and we turn our discernment into the jibe of criticism instead of intercession on their behalf. Intercession means that we rouse ourselves up to get the mind of Christ about the one for whom we pray. We rouse ourselves up to lay hold of Jesus so that we may be brought into contact with his mind about the ones for whom we pray. God continually introduces us to people for whom we have no affinity. True that. And unless we're worshiping God, the most natural thing to do is to treat them heartlessly, to give them a verse like the jab of a spear, and to leave them with a a sharply spoken counsel of God, and then go. He says that we must be so identified with Jesus that we are roused up to get his view about the people for whom we pray. We got to pray for one another our flaws and our weaknesses, because we are co-laborers. In fact, we are a family on mission together. What are we? A family on mission together. There's lots of different personalities in this family. And there were lots of different personalities in this list of men that we've read in, in, in verse 2. Peter, bold, brash, blustery, always spoke before he thought. His motto was ready, fire, aim. Next, there's Thomas. Poor Thomas, for 2,000 years, he's been the poster child of doubt. The only thing worse growing with the church than being a doubting Thomas was to be a Judas. So there's Thomas. We've got Nathaniel. Don't say any, scripture doesn't say anything about him. He's mentioned in John chapter 1 and, and this last chapter of John. That's it. All we know is that Jesus said, Here is one in whom there is no guile. There's nothing dramatic ever recorded about Nathaniel. Doesn't seem to do anything significant. Maybe he's just the slow, steady, faithful kind that goes unnoticed. Then we come to the sons of Zebedee, James and John, sons of thunder. And then finally, on the list, we find two other disciples. That's it. Two other disciples. John doesn't even bother to name them. He doesn't think that we need to know. Perhaps that's so that believers in Christ, like you, believer, like I am, can find ourselves here, experiencing the togetherness of community that Jesus brings to a diverse group. Experiencing the preserving power of Jesus to to hold us together. A power that allows us to extend love and mercy and grace to one another. The power that makes us a body, though very different, with different gifts, with different strengths, with different weaknesses, with different successes, with different failures. Yet we are one in Christ, together in Christ. It's that resurrection power that allows us to love and accept each other as we've been loved and accepted by Christ, to support and forgive one another as we are supported by and forgiven by Christ. The power that allows a faithful Nathaniel to put his arms around a doubting Thomas and say, lean on me, let's be strong together. 
This is resurrection power at work. We couldn't do it on our own. And that's why we prefer not to get too close to each other. Because when we get too close, we know we'll be disappointed. You know, no one can stay on a pedestal for very long, right? The only way you can stay on a pedestal is if people don't really know you. But the minute you start living with people and working with people, ain't no more pedestal. So we need the everyday power of the resurrection to forgive each other of our faults and our failures, to face each other in light of them and to stay together. And when the world sees that this is possible, when they hear our stories of broken lives that are put back together by Jesus, when they see lives that are held together by Jesus, they will know that there is a present ongoing reality of the resurrection and they will want it. I believe they'll be drawn to us Easter Sunday and the Sunday after that and the Sunday after that and the Sunday after that because they want what Jesus offers that they see in us because together we are the people of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you as always for your word. Lord, and we think about these men in real time and real place. It's, it's amazing to us what you did in them and through them and for them because we can so easily put ourselves in their places. We know, Lord, how we respond in our own lives. What guilt and shame do to us. And yet, Lord, we thank you that you have taken them away. I pray that we would live as shame-free, guilt-free people. But only because we know what to do with that shame and guilt. Because we know where to take it. And that is to the foot of the cross. For you take away our shame and remove from us the burden of our guilt. You set us free, Lord, to to be the church and to accomplish the amazing things that you have set before us to do. Father, pray that the gospel would be real among us. Father, pray that we would not be afraid to get to know one another, but that we would Relish living with one another, working with each other. And Lord, when we hit our finger with a nail, certain words will come out of certain people's mouths. Lord, we'll have different reactions to different things in our lives. So pray that the gospel will cover those things, that we'll extend grace and mercy and compassion to one another. But that we'll also be bold enough, Lord, to challenge each other with the truth of your word. Not accepting one another in the way of saying, oh, it's okay, just just do what you want to do. No, no, challenging each other, Lord, with the truth of your word. Keep our purpose ever before us, Lord. You preserve us for a purpose, and that's so that we can be your church in this world. Do that in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.